Hello, everyone. It's very nice to be up here. Uh, I, I, too, am uh, a little nervous. It's been a little while since I've done this. Um, and yeah, as Ben said, I'm sharing a story. He was rather annoyed that I wouldn't tell him what story. You were. The look on your face. But I just wanted to say, I wanted to say thank you to you for you sharing your story. It's great to hear people's stories, isn't it? Um, and it is nerve-wracking standing up here uh, in front of you lot. You're intimidating. <laughs> so thank you very much for the courage you showed to, to do that. And actually, I, I judge for yourself, but I think it fits in quite well with what I wanted to share this afternoon. <clears throat> Nearly said morning. It's been a long while. So, <clears throat> as you will know, as you will have already heard, we're at the beginning of our series on uh, God's story, many stories. If you missed Nancy last week, definitely look it up online because she was um, really, really good. Um, and so I kind of thought, mm, how am I going to follow that? She sets the bar high, doesn't she? But as Nancy said, stories elevate a factual account. They allow you to live and breathe it. They allow you to put yourself in their shoes, feel what they felt, see what they saw. So it's great to hear stories. And you might hear a lot in society about the decline of books and reading and all those sorts of things. But... Actually, if you scratch below the surface, our society remains just as obsessed with story as it always has. The function of story has moved over time, of course. In ancient history, it was about recording significant events, handing, handing down a sense of identity from one generation to the next. In the modern age, it became more about entertainment and escapism, now, in the postmodern age, story has become more about how we express uh, our own identity. The language of social media has taken up the idea of story. I find that quite interesting because you're encouraged to add things to your story or share your story. Like everything else, it seems, the concept of what a story is has become intensely personal. It's my story. But it's an intensely personal thing that we like to share with anyone who'll listen. So Nancy mentioned the, the joy of listening to a gifted storyteller. And it's true. Some people do naturally spin a good yarn, but I like to equate things to food. I'll give you two guesses as to why. Um, so I think that a gifted storyteller is much like a chef. So if you gave a chef and me the same set of ingredients and a recipe to follow, we would both produce the same meal, sort of. You would almost certainly enjoy the one that the chef produced more. But we'd both produce the same meal. In the same way, even if you feel you're not a gifted storyteller, if you have the right ingredients, you can still tell a good story. 
So, good story is like a good recipe. Starting with the right ingredients really helps. So at the risk of straying into an English lesson, there are five essential ingredients to a good story. Um, and I didn't get this from an English teacher, so if you are an English teacher, panic now. Right, that includes my mother. She's panicking, yeah, okay, great. So, ingredient number one is a situation. So the listener needs to know what's going on, where we are, when we are. The second thing it needs is a motive or a catalyst, something that prompts an action or a reaction. The third thing it needs is a challenge or a conflict, so something that gets in the way, something that means that choices have to be made, obstacles overcome, that sort of thing. It then needs a resolution. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be tied up in a nice bow, but something needs to have happened as a result of what's gone before. The fifth ingredient, and possibly one of the most important, is it needs relatable characters. The most relatable characters, of course, are you and me. which is why personal stories work so well. But you only have to skim through Netflix or pick up a novel to realize that actually fictional characters can be quite relatable too. I'd like to tell you a story, if I may. So if you are sitting comfortably, I'll begin by introducing you to Joe. This is Joe. He's a police officer. He was raised in a strong Christian home. Joe has high moral values and takes his job of keeping law and order very seriously. He loves his city and wants to protect all that is good and wholesome from anything that would threaten to infect or destabilize the balance of what it is. Joe is from a long line of police officers and his dad is currently the chief of police in the city. Now, he doesn't expect or receive any special treatment for that, but it's a fact, and he can't escape it. This is Alex. He is the leader of a notorious gang who call themselves the Nine Vs and run an illicit trading post just outside of the city. The gang has a fearsome reputation, for violence and immorality. In fact, they spend a lot of their time attacking the city's residents, stealing things, selling them on the black market. To Joe, they represent the epitome of the undesirable element. He would like nothing better than to see them all rounded up and taken out of action. So one day... <clears throat> Joe is called into his dad's office and asked to take on a special mission. Joe is given a sealed letter, told to deliver it to Alex and the entire <clears throat> Nine V's gang. Joe asks what's in the letter, and he's told that it's a warning to the gang. Stop what you're doing or face the consequences. Great, Joe thinks. 
they are finally going to get what they deserve. And off he sets to deliver the news. He feels a sense of excitement that something big is on the cards. However, as Joe sets out on his journey, he begins to think a little bit more deeply about the contents of the letter. Knowing the author very well, he starts to wonder what might happen if Alex accepts the warning to stop. They might actually escape justice. All of the things that they have done in the past would simply be forgiven and the people of the city would never get what they deserve. Surely that can't be right. Surely that goes against everything he believes in, everything his dad should stand for. As he's debating this, a call comes over the radio. There's a group of youths that has broken into an abandoned building and are causing a nuisance. Seeing an opportunity to delay his journey, Joe takes the call and heads for the building, which is in another part of the city. As Joe approaches the building, he hears the group shouting and messing around. The sound is coming from the third floor. He can hear that the youths are more than likely just in high spirits and decides that they don't pose much of a threat, so he heads in to give them a warning and send them on their way. <clears throat> As he reaches the third floor and comes face to face with the youths, the building begins to shake. An earthquake. Thinking quickly, Joe instructs the youths to head down the stairs to relative safety. But as Joe crosses the floor to join the group, the earthquake reaches its crescendo and the building begins to shake violently. The floor underneath Joe collapses and he falls three floors, ending up in a heap of rubble and surrounded by clouds of dust. In fear, the group of youths has fled and Joe is left alone. In the still and the silence, as the dust settles around him, Joe closes his eyes and prays. When I was in trouble, Lord, I prayed to you, and you listened to me. From deep in the world of the dead, I begged for your help, and you answered my prayer. You threw me down to the bottom of the building. The dust was swirling all around. I was completely covered by darkness. I thought I was swept away from your sight, never again to see your holy temple. I was almost choked by the swirling dust that surrounded me. Concrete had fallen around my head. I had sunk down deep below the mountains, deep in the depths. I knew that forever I would be a prisoner there. But you, Lord God, rescued me from that pit. When my life was slipping away, I remembered you. And in your holy temple, you heard my prayer. All who worship worthless idols turn from the God who offers them mercy. But with shouts of praise, I will offer a sacrifice to you, my Lord. I will keep my promise, because you are the one with the power to save. As he prayed, Joe began to feel sensation in his feet again. It slowly travelled up his legs through his body. Gingerly, he got up. 
and with a renewed determination, he realized he must complete his mission and deliver the letter. So he gets up and heads to the nine V's and to confront Alex. When Joe arrives, he is surprised that he isn't met with hostility as he expected. In fact, he is taken directly to Alex, who is keen to receive the message that Joe has been entrusted with. When he reads the letter, Alex is overcome with emotion and immediately issues an order for the entire 9Vs gang to turn from their old ways and turn their attention to legitimate business. The letter also contained a pardon for the whole 9Vs gang if they agreed to change their ways. Joe leaves the 9Vs having carried out his orders, but absolutely fuming about the outcome. He calls his dad on the way back to the city. I knew you would do this, Joe fumes. You just can't help yourself, can you? They deserved everything they got, and yet you just hand out a pardon just because they said they're sorry. I can't believe it. I've had enough. I quit. Joe's father waited for Joe to express his anger, took a deep breath, and then said, why are you so angry? You love our city, so do I. But is it not right that I also express concern for the nine Vs who sit within our jurisdiction? There are hundreds of people and families who depend on them, but they don't understand right from wrong. The end. The story of Jonah is often misunderstood, often dismissed, and often dramatically reduced to its children's Bible status of being a story about a reluctant prophet and an implausibly big fish. In reality, the fish is something of a distraction. In fact, I would possibly go as far to say an irrelevance. Sharp intake of breath. See, it's one of those quirks of the Bible that would have made a lot more sense to the original audience than it does to us today. I'm not making any statement about the reality of whether Jonah was swallowed by a big fish or not. You know, miracles happen, God can do what he pleases. That's not what I'm trying to say. All I'm trying to say is let's not get hung up about it because it really isn't important. That's why in the story I told you just now that Joe, whose surname, as you've probably guessed by now, was Nah, um, that's why I had him falling from a building because the context is more relatable. The message is the same. He almost died. He cried out to God. He was saved to continue his mission. Now, of course, we need to be careful in seeking to recontextualize these stories so that we don't introduce concepts that were never there or that we don't change fundamental truths by addition or omission. But I am hoping that by telling you this story this afternoon, I've given you some confidence that whether telling your story or someone else's, 
we have some freedom to make it relevant to the listener. This is important if we're committed to the cultural values of being welcoming, of being diverse, and if we want to be a prophetic voice in society. There is no point in speaking out if nobody gets our references because they draw on 8th century BC worldviews. Let me give you a practical example. My own story involves being brought up in the church. I look around, many of you will remember me as a small child. It's slightly worrying. I had a very loving and supportive Christian family and a strong Christian education to boot. Someone from a more disadvantaged background with agnostic or atheist parents isn't going to relate to many of my experiences and may not get some of my reference points. Now, of course, some of what I've been through and learned might be helpful to them, but probably I would focus more on my time at either college or university where I was more standing on my own two feet, more isolated, more facing difficult decisions about following the crowd or following my faith, because I think they would probably find more that is relatable in those stories. So what do I want to draw out this afternoon from the story of Joe, Nah, and the nine bands? <laughs> Apart from some truly terrible puns. There's so much richness in this story. Okay. Um, in preparation for this, I read this book, Prodigal Prophet by Timothy Keller. It's a fantastic study of Jonah. Well worth a read if you want to go a little bit deeper on it. But... Um, In the few uh, minutes that remain to me, uh, I want to talk about balance. So, I've recently been giving our eldest boys, Jack and George, their first driving lessons. I know you're either thinking, what a hero, or what an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not entirely sure which one it is either. But the point is, everything in this scenario is about balance. So on a practical level, we started, obviously, with getting the car moving. So that's about finding the balance between the release of the clutch and feeding in the power. Then we get moving, and it becomes about finding the right balance in myself of staying calm and making sure that we're safe. And the balance of being a teacher and a parent. In the story of Jonah, we find a guy who's really struggling to find the right, right balance between what he thought a gracious and just God looked like and the reality of the God of grace and justice. So let's unpack that a little. Jonah is mentioned in Two Kings as being a prophet with the ear of King Jeroboam II. It's not a huge mention. 
but perhaps significant in helping us to understand Jonah's mindset. It says that he was... Uh, it's, it says that it was through the word of God that was delivered by Jonah that the king restored the boundaries of Israel through conquest. This suggests that Jonah was something of a proud Israelite and had great pride in his nation and people. We see that supported by what we read in the story of Jonah. He's called to Nineveh. He's reluctant to go because he doesn't see the value of the people there. They are enemies of Israel and they deserve to be punished and not pardoned. But you see, it also says in 2 Kings that Jeroboam II was not a good king. He continued to lead the people in sin. But God was full of grace towards them. He restored Israel so that it was not blotted out under heaven. However, when he is asked to go to another sinful nation and deliver the news of God's grace, Jonah is, well, let's be kind and say that he was somewhat reluctant You see, people think that God is complex and difficult to understand. But actually, with things like this, it's, not, it's really very simple. Either God is gracious, or God is not. And if God is gracious, then he is gracious all the time. You can't expect God to be gracious to you and the people that you care about and then not be gracious to the people you don't want him to be gracious to. It just doesn't work that way. You see, we complicate things because of our broken sense of morality, our broken sense of penal justice. And we think, well, I know we all fall short, right? But I was a lot closer than this guy. You know, maybe God's grace extends as far as me. And maybe, maybe it even extends as far as them. But it surely can't extend as far as that guy. Just checking there was no one over there. No, right, right, okay. If God's grace extends to you, it extends to everyone. And if God's justice sees you restored when you don't deserve it, then God's justice would see everyone restored and given more than they deserve. So if you are a recipient of God's grace and justice, don't be surprised when he offers it to other people as well. It's all about balance. Balancing my view of what God is like with the sometimes uncomfortable reality of what God is actually like. Have any of you read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce? 
that's a lot fewer than I expected, to be honest. You really should. You really should. It's nearly 80 years old, believe it or not. But it's a fantastic read and so insightful. For those of you who haven't read it, it tells the story, and C.S. Lewis is very clear that this is a story. But it tells the story of a man who travels with some spirits on a bus to heaven. And when he gets there, he, uh, he, um, he watches all of these spirits' encounters with the heavenly folk, with people that they used to know in their past lives. And every one of them is talking about what they see as their reality. And the people who've come to meet them, the heavenly folk who've come to meet them, are just saying, don't worry about that now. Come on in. Come on up. You don't need to worry about that. But they just can't get past what they think is right or wrong or things that they have gone through. It's a real eye-opener, and it's, it is well worth a read. It's very easy to read because it's a story. It's nice. But it's all about people struggling to find balance. So I hope that that's resonated with you in some way. But as Nancy said last week, the drive behind this series is not just bringing a message on a Sunday, but that in sharing stories that have inspired or provoked us, we are all inspired. Inspired by what it is to be a child of God, inspired by the value of story, and moreover, inspired that our stories are worth sharing, whether that's to build up the church or to share good news. Every one of us has a story that's important. Thank you.